1: looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
2: One of the foundations of our country is really um, uh, emanating from that is going to be our freedom. You hear a lot about liberty and freedom, do you not? I think you do. And that becomes a very big trait. The bigger question, though, is if liberty and freedom, where does liberty and freedom come from? Well, that that is a good question. Well, I believe it really comes back to our founding fathers. Our founding fathers defined for us as a nation, by laws, what our freedom will be. They believe that a country that's going to have freedom, that it needs to be documented and it needs to be like a purpose statement. For us, it would be the Constitution. It'd be the Bill of Rights. It'd be the Declaration of Independence. It would be some other documents, similar but also crafted, describing for us what those freedoms would look like and what's the principle. Now, I hope you're following me because I'm building a case. This is not your normal three points in a poem and a hula message. In order for that to occur, for us to have those freedoms, those freedoms have to be delineated so we would know what they would look like and from where they would come. They were written now by men, and those men now had to be influenced so you have to ask the next question, who influenced those men? So if you take the framers of our constitution and you go back to who actually influenced them, you'd have to go back to those who were their mentors, those books whom they have written or they have written or read so they would understand what was feeding their particular minds. You take that train of thought so they've embraced this, this style of law, this style of government, watch this, this sci- the side, style of moral code, where did all of that come from? Those men got it from others that helped influence them back in Europe that did that. So you take all of them and you find out what were they like, and you will find that they then embraced what we will simply call the Judeo-Christian ethic. How many of you heard the term Judeo-Christian ethic? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Now, many people have heard that, but some of them have a difficult time. What does that mean, Judeo-Christian ethic? Well, I put it in your worship notes, and I, I know I may have oversimplified for some of you people that really like to parse all of this stuff, but I wanted to make it simple so that I could understand it, and maybe some others can too. Basically what that is saying, that there is a value system that is found upon Judea, which would mean the Old Testament principles and writings, and then the Christian, and they looked to that being the New Testament, so that's why they call it Judeo-Christian. So if I really want to simplify this, it would be that they were going back to the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the Judeo-Christian ethic. So those people that embraced a Judeo-Christian ethic, and I'm going to call it a biblical worldview, they're the ones then that were teachers, the influencers, the preachers, the, um, the, uh, the government ideologists, all right? They then influenced the people then who wrote the material, who then that material was read by our founding fathers. And as I got together with the Bible, with the value systems of a moral code, and often the Ten Commandments being the foundation of that, but the Judeo-Christian ethic, they then framed, going back full circle, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, which we have today. Now, there is a, a cult and maybe some religions that would have a very hard time with us singing the Star Spangled Banner today. They would have a hard time for us to wave the American flag. I can understand. For some of them might think that we are worshipping the United States of America, and our symbol would be the flag, so we're kind of worshipping all these different icons, etc. I can get where they might think that. But in reality, the true American, and I want to be careful when I say that, the true understanding biblical American that would understand all of this background and all that goes with it, would understand that we're not worshiping America. We are worshiping that which made America great. Now listen carefully. It wasn't like God looked upon all these people here, and says, you know what? I think we need a better land, so we're going to make America over here. We're going to put all these people in there, and I'm going to make them all special because I really like them. They're really great. We need a better country, so they're it. You may believe that, and there are some that do, and I see some value in that, but in reality, I don't think that's really it at all. I think his principle is, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So while God then perhaps uh, created a, a situation, a conflict, in Europe, and brought people to America. He brought them here. These were people, as they were coming, they weren't just fleeing what was going on in another country. They were also coming here because embedded deep within them was the message of everything we're talking about, a biblical worldview, which then would begin at the gospel. So while they would come, they were not just coming to find another land, they were also coming to reach whoever would be in this other land and then have a place where they can then use it as a foundation to build a new nation of those who would be... Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. So then God looked upon that, and he was blessing his word, not the people. And as long as the people were willing to follow the word, then God would be blessing that because he's really giving glory back to himself because he's only fulfilling that which he said he would do. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so it starts with the individuals. Then it starts with families. I believe then it would go into the local churches and then in communities and and then all over. So as an individual, as a family... As a church or religion or community uh, community backs away from the Judeo-Christian ethics, then we have some issues. Now let me give you a quote going all the way back to the founding of our country. And there's gazillion quotes. I know I'm exaggerating, but some of you know what I mean by that. This one's coming from Thomas Jefferson. And let me pause for a moment. I've been doing a lot of study on the background of Thomas Jefferson because he claimed himself to be a deist. Others claimed himself to be a deist, him to be a deist. There were deists back then. You have to redefine what a deist is, and then you're going to find how that there could be a revisionist in what he was saying on other issues. So I don't want to try to get up here today and parse whether Jefferson was in the faith or outside the faith. What I would like to say is whether he said it in or out of the faith, what he said had value, and that's what I want to leave with you. And here's what he said. God, who gave us life, gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Now, when I read that last part, what screamed at that last sentence was what I just read to you in Psalm 11 here. And what he's basically saying is God's justice, what he just promised he would do to those who are violent, God-wicked haters, All right, then he would then say, I don't want him to sleep. His justice demands that he will have to awake someday and judge them. Even Thomas Jefferson saw that way back then. So we had today sung the Star-Spangled Banner, and I'm so grateful for our worship team who led us in the third verse of that because it really said, in God we trust. And that's really where it all began. So I'd like you to now leave Psalm 11 and go with me for just a moment to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. <clears throat> and then I'm going to quickly go through these seven um, ethics, seven Judeo-Christian ethics or principles for you so you could have those. Some of you are still wondering, which would those, those be for our country? And I've selected seven. Could be more, could be less, but at least these seven. But for just a moment I would like you to look at John chapter 8 verse 32 cuz we are talking about freedom. And in John 8:32, it's a very simple verse. It says here, "And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free." So now if you want to look over every country to the degree that that country would know the truth, that truth would begin to set them free. Now, what is interesting for those of you that have turned there, look to the verse right before it because you're going to see where that truth is wrapped. All right. Verse 31, it says. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, in other words, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. So the real question about how do I really know the truth is not to stay on the outside looking in and and grab the Bible once in a while. It's those who say the Bible is the bedrock of truth I want to know the book. I want to live the book. I don't want to use it as just a political, historical book. I don't want to look look at the Bible as a legal book. I want it to be God's mind on paper. Everything that I want to know about Christ is going to be found in his word here. So I'm going to continue in the word. Then it says I'm a true disciple of his, and I will know the truth. And it's at that time the truth will make me free. So truth can make free, but part of it is predicated upon what we do. Now look in verse 36, same chapter. So if the sun makes you free, not your works, not your religion, not a political system, it says, for if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So look up here for just a moment. So while we will have all these different laws, and a lot of these different laws are to, quote, protect the freedoms of various people. But sometimes when we make up these laws, the freedoms that we're protecting is the freedom to continue to violate God, the freedom to go against God's word. And that's not freedom at all. In fact, when we do that, then we're actually brought into a greater slave because there is a slave of sin. And when we think we're free, we're really not. We're brought underneath sin again. So that's not it at all. So where is real freedom found? It is found in truth. Now the question is, where is truth? Scripture says God is truth. Scripture says the Holy Spirit is truth. We already know, we hear this more often than not, is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So now we have the Word of God that comes from the, the Trinity, the deity. That's where our freedom comes. So we go all the way back again to Scripture. Now when you hear Christ, you might think, ooh, that must be the, not the Judeo, it's the Christian ethic of Jesus. So only the words of Jesus matters. It does not matter just the words of Jesus because all of Scripture, all of the Word has been inspired by God the Holy Spirit and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all one. Now, that's my case for that. Now that you have that, now let me quickly, in the little bit of time I have left, go over what I would like to give to you now. What are seven of our foundational freedoms that we have that would be known as the Judeo-Christian ethic? And I'm I'm going to give them to you because I want you to have many of them today for you to ponder. Most of you who are Christian are going to say, I know that, I know that, I know that too, I know that too. And I'm glad you know that. That is really great. Others of you are going to say, Oh, that's really neat. I-, I didn't really know that. But I I'm not I'm frustrated for this. Because when I give these to you, I often, while I'm preaching to you, I'm also thinking of the postmodern mindset that is hearing me speak. And when I give you these, the postmodern mindset has all of these um retorts to these ethics that I'm about to give to you and I feel so frustrated because I know you want to give those retorts and you're going to leave here believing your own retort and I can understand that because you've never probably sat down with someone who would then open up and speak back to your retorts to this and be able to maybe give you another way to look at that and I wish I had the time to do that. I wish I had seven weeks to go through these seven one each to give you this is it and here's how the world might think of it but let me show you why that thinking is not as accurate and it could be better thought this way and go back to Scripture to show them that there is an answer to it. I don't have time for that. But I want to assure you, this is not just seven little points, let's go to dinner now. No, these are seven points that you can drill deeply in the Word of God has answers, and there are great Bible scholars that will explain how this really fits in biblically, politically, socially, into our lives. So these seven are really important truths for you to know, to own, to live, and to teach your children. So let's go over these seven Pretty quickly for you, at least the time we have today. Ethic number one, principle number one, and that is the dignity and sanctity of human life. The dignity and sanctity of human life. Exodus twenty thirteen says, you shall not murder. You bring it to the New Testament, and not only says you shouldn't be angry with someone, it's as if you murdered them when you are angry, it says this, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you read the Declaration of Independence, you're going to find that our founding fathers wrote that every man, woman, and child has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Would you say that with me? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you know, when I look at this, I want you to know that our brave men and women that are involved in military are doing everything that they can to provide the safety of human life. They believe in the dignity of human life. And it's everywhere. In fact, I think the most basic need, other than salvation, in fact, I think this need comes before salvation. And you'll see why in a moment. I think the basic need is the need to exist. Think about that. We have the right to exist. So when I think of human life, I think of those fetuses. They are human. You might call them a preborn, but they're human. We know enough to agree that they're preborn and they exist because if you're a drunk driver and you hit a pregnant woman and she and the baby dies, you're credited for two deaths. That little baby has a right to exist. I know that America is often referred to as the policeman for the world and there are there's a great movement today that's trying to pull back America from being the policemen and police women for the world. And I understand why. We're expending so much money, so much energy. We're giving so much to a world that often doesn't even want us to help them. I, I get all of that. I really do. And I, I want. what's happening. What's happening to families that have lost loved ones and they, they, their sons and daughters are, are home maimed after they've taken over a community to help that community have a right to exist only to have another group come in and slaughter the men, women, and boys and we've lost that city. I, 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 but we cannot give up whatever we can do with what we have to do it with to preserve the right to exist. And so while we're out there doing that, let's do that here. And let's let's remember that we do not want to slaughter God's creation, whether they're whales or monk seals. But I would only pray that we would put as much effort and money into saving preborns as we would some animals that are out there as well. So they have a right to exist. And I pray that That began our country and that we, too, would still have that same passion because that is really the beginning of every civilization. That's the ethic upon which any healthy civilization will exist. Number two, ethic number two, the traditional family. And you know where I'm going with this, the traditional family. So we're going to call this the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage. To do this, I need to explain to some of you that might be new in this. There's a word that's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is basically the science or the study of the proper interpretation of Scripture. And to understand Scripture accurately, to know God's mind accurately on this, instead of grabbing a verse here and grabbing a verse there, there are proper interpretive laws that you take to Scripture so that you would make sure that you have the accurate, most correct understanding of the passage of Scripture. One of those principles is called the first mention principle. That means that through Scripture, when God mentions something first, that is almost like throwing the bowling ball down the aisle. That's the direction of that truth. And so you want to find out what was said at the very beginning of that truth then you follow that bowling ball of truth through Scripture and you're going to find that it will stay within the alley. It won't jump into another field or out in the parking lot. It's going to stay right in the field. And if you do this, the sanctity of marriage began here with the first mentioned principle. And as you run it through Scripture, you're going to find that this is held in the confines of Scripture and it's not to deviate from it into some other kind of transgender or new way to try to define yourself. Or same- sex marriage, so let's look at the passage in Genesis chapter two, already, right off the bat, second chapter of the entire Bible. It doesn't wait to get further deeper into into the Bible it starts right off right after creation. so the Lord caused so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept genesis two twenty one through twenty four then he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord fashioned it into It doesn't say another man. It said into a woman. And I'm not trying to be funny here. I just want to make sure that you see the distinction clearly. Into a woman. The rib which he had taken from the man. And he brought her, the woman, to the man. Not to a man who turned into a woman. But the woman. First mentioned. It was a woman to the man. The man said, this woman is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called And there it is again. It's like God is saying, listen, this first mentioned principle is screaming at you, the traditional family, called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, and now you can underline this, shall a man leave his father and mother, circle father and mother, because you're going to see again... Father and mother, now you're going to see how this is going to be taken through the rest of Scripture. Remember, there was no father and mother before this was written, in a sense, before this occurred, because there was no woman until God made the woman here. And then from the man and the woman, other children came. But God wrote this here, so we would see right from the very beginning it was God's intention that there would be a father and a mother. And then he's to be joined to his wife, not to a, a, a bisexual person, but to his wife. And they, husband and wife shall become one flesh, implying that a man and a man cannot be one flesh. I don't care what you stick, where, where. It says, a wife, they shall become one flesh, not another woman to a woman. It's a man and a woman, husband and wife, one flesh. This is the biblical view of marriage and family. It's the basis of our society, and it serves as the backbone of a healthy social order. You ought to write that down. This is the backbone of a healthy social order. Now, that's not to say that when you have two sexes together that you might not have some degree of happiness in that relationship for X amount of time. You can see them jumping up and down with glee. I get that. But happiness is still not joy. Now, at the same time, I can also read you many of families where husbands and wives were also not happy. There was no joy and they divorced. But that still doesn't nullify the truth of the fact of what God had to say. So when it goes back to this. The healthy social order. Is a husband and a wife. Who follow the biblical confines. Of scripture. And God has instituted that. Right from the get go. Now. I would like to say more about this. But you can imagine the amount of time. That I don't have. But I would pray that we would understand. The value. Of the sanctity of marriage. Ethic number two. Number three. And that is a national work ethic. A national work ethic. This was so valuable to our founding fathers and to those that believe that Judeo-Christian ethic that it really has passed down all through our ages now to this national work ethic. But where did they get that? It went all the way back to Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, for it says, For even when we were with you, that would be Paul and his uh, partner, not his sexual partner, but his partner in ministry, we used to give you this order, in other words, when we are with you, we gave you this order. We taught you how you should function. And he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he has not to eat. Now, that was said in a context where people were now slacking off their working because they thought the Lord was going to come back at any moment. So they thought, ooh, the most spiritual thing to do is not work. Let's sit around here and wait for the Lord to come back. He'll be here any moment. And what it was basically saying, no matter what's happening in the world, it's important that you work. Whatever happening in the spiritual world is that you work. So the meaning that people should work for their own livelihood, and I'd like to say this, that people are to work for their own livelihood, stay with me now, there is enough scripture that also says, and also for the legitimate needs of those who are legitimately unable to work. So yes, when we work, we work for ourselves, but also for others. And if you look in scripture, you're going to find that from the Old Testament law, Old Testament principles in Proverbs, you're going to find it even when the Apostle Paul spoke that he did this so he could then help others that couldn't do this. So it's not just like work, 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 mind, mind, mind. all this money is just for me, me, me. It wasn't like that. On the other hand, it was not we work, you sit around and we give you so you don't have to work. That's what it was really speaking here against, that kind of lifestyle. And that just doesn't work. The independent spirit has no desire to exist on handouts from government or even to siphon the living from the benevolence of friends. Now, when I look at the Great Depression, some of you might have lived during the Great Depression. That was probably America at its worst economically, and there were so many people that were out of work. My dad and mom lived during the Great Depression. And um, in many ways, I'm glad they did because there were so many values of what they learned during the Great Depression that they brought upon us as as children growing up about working hard for your money, making sure you save, don't splurge your money, you know, enjoy what you have as basic needs of life. A little luxury may come now and then, but don't go after the luxuries. There's a lot that they taught us from that particular back uh, story. That being the case, here's what I do know about the Depression. America, when they were at their knees during the Depression time, they still joined heart to heart and hand to hand, and they rebuild the economy of our nation into the mightiest in the world, which then gave us the opportunity to do something for the rest of the world. Again, listen. While I might think America is a great country, we are only as great as we embrace God's word here because God says blessed is the country, the nation whose God is the Lord. I get that. So now what has happened to America? We have been blessed. And when we've been blessed, we become the richest country in the entire world. It wasn't because God favored us because he likes us more than others. It's because we follow biblical principles of when we work and we use our money wisely, which means we save it, we give it, we manage it, we use it, We use it to help others learn these truths. So all that being said, you look at America. What have we done? We have gone around the world and we have poured millions, trillions of dollars into other countries that were really hurting. Did we not? And we did that because of our work ethic to help them that had not at the time. Follow with me, if you will. We bombed Japan nuclear. We bombed Europe And after we did and the war was over, we went back into the places that we demolished and we rebuilt those countries with many of the values that we had. And so when the world looks upon us in the past as that mighty country of America,
1: they might...